Thanks, Claire. Uh, if I don't know you this morning, my name is Rob. I'm a member of the congregation here. Um, we're going to be taking a look this morning at our next installment uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. So if you've got a Bible, uh, do have that open in front of you. There should be one um, in the pocket in the chair in front of you, if not. Let me start, though, by asking you a question. How good are you at spotting a fake? Um, are you somebody that can uh, pick up a pair of uh, Nike Jordans and look at the stitching and tell, is this the real deal or is this an import from the Far East? Uh, could you uh, do a blind taste test with a bottle of Coca-Cola and pick it out from the supermarket own brand? I don't know how good you are at doing that, but I ask that question because in this next bit of Acts, we see uh, two examples of faith. One which at first looks spectacular on the surface, uh, but which ultimately proves to be inauthentic. It's not the real deal. And one which initially looks a little bit less promising, but in fact is the real thing. That's what we're going to take a look at uh, this morning. But before we jump back into Acts chapter 8, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask you again this morning that you would give us your spirit so that we might understand your words correctly and have our hearts transformed by them. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, first, it would be good to have a little bit of context as we jump back into um, Acts chapter 8. If you were here last Sunday morning, um, then George took us through the first bit of the chapter. Uh, and we saw persecution rising up against the whole church in Jerusalem. Uh, but God transformed that bad news of persecution and opposition into good news. As the church is now scattered from Jerusalem out to Judea and the surrounding area and even into Samaria, exactly the places that Jesus said his gospel would be preached right at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so now the gospel is doing this powerful and incredible thing. It is breaking through racial and ethnic and religious divisions. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, as the Samaritans hear the gospel preached to them, and as they see sick people being healed and uh, the demon-possessed brought back to uh, their right minds and to real and true life, uh, we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, that there is much joy in the city. And then we meet Simon. Uh, Simon is an example of false faith. His, heart is, is, his mind is amazed but his heart is not transformed. Simon is amazed, uh, but his heart is not transformed. That's our first point this morning. Uh, before the Samaritans uh, start paying attention to Philip uh, and to the gospel message that he brought, for a long time they paid attention, uh, all of them, from the least to the great, to Simon, and they were amazed by his magic. Uh, Simon himself claimed to be someone uh, great, someone who wielded divine power, uh, and we know from uh, both Samaritan and uh, Roman historians in the second century uh, that many people at the time considered Simon uh, to be some kind of God himself. Uh, but something incredible, something unbelievable, literally, as we'll see later, happens in verse 13. Uh, Simon the Amazing, we might call him, uh, Luke uses that word twice to describe him, is himself amazed as he sees the signs and the miracles which accompany Philip's proclamation of the gospel. We're told that Simon believes, and then that he's baptised. Brilliant, amazing news. Uh, you can imagine the temptation, can't you, to uh, get Simon up at the front of church and uh, give us his testimony. 
well, yes, I used to be a magician. I used to be the one in charge. I used to harness the power of the occult, and people used to be amazed by me, but now I've seen these guys come from Jerusalem, and I've seen what real power looks like, and actually I've got baptized, and I've believed, and I'm actually going to go on a mission trip now with Philip. Incredible. Unbelievable. I'm told that in any good magic trick, there are three stages to the reveal. Firstly, there's something called the pledge. That's when you show something ordinary. That's when you hold up the card and show everybody it's just a, just a normal card. Then you do the turn. Something remarkable, something extraordinary happens. You make the card disappear or you pull a rabbit out of the hat. And then there's the third and the final act, the prestige, uh, which is where you bring back the card or you reveal the trick and you show that you're really in control of it. With Simon the Magician, it seems like we get the first two of these acts, but not the third. Look down with me a little bit further on in Acts chapter 8 to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon was amazed by the signs and the great miracles uh, that accompanied gospel proclamation. But he's not been transformed by its message. We're told in verse 13 that Simon believed But here we see that that does not mean that he's made Jesus his Lord. Power, and how he can get his hands on that power, is still what motivates and what drives Simon. It's still his God. Simon is, as it were, fixated on the benefits of faith, not on its object. And this causes Peter, the leader of the early church, who's come down from Jerusalem to see what's happening in verses 20 to 21, to rebuke Simon strongly. And he does that not out of spite or out of disappointment, but he does out of a real deep-seated desire to see Simon repent and to seek God's mercy. Uh, Look at what Peter says in verse 21. Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right. Literally, uh, that word means your heart is crooked before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Uh, Simon's response to this is to ask Peter to pray for him, which might at first sound reasonable. But again, it demonstrates his unwillingness to really deal himself personally with what's going on in his heart. And to come before God and to repent of his sin. And to accept Jesus as Lord. And to trust him and follow him in true repentance and faith. And so in this passage, we've got a real and a serious warning to us. Because on the outside, Simon looks like a true believer, doesn't he? I mean, he's impressed by Philip. He listens to the message. He says that he's believed. He's even willing to go uh, to the steps of getting baptized and then to follow Philip around on some kind of mission trip. Philip uh, teaching seems to make an impression on Simon. He sees this new source of power and influence, and so he believes, and he's baptized. And on the outside, on the surface at least, he he looks like a genuine new believer. And and what a catch. Simon, the magician, this guy who exercised power over the Samaritans, a significant figure in society, someone who people used to call a god. 
and yet his faith isn't real. And then it turns out to be a fake. It's possible for us to perform religion like Simon did, but to do so without real faith. Now, we might think, well, why would anybody do that? I can see in, in Simon's example, there seemed to be some kind of power that he identified, some kind of social benefit from uh, following Jesus. Um, that doesn't happen so much now, does it? You know, uh, following Jesus is something that's looked down upon. It's not exactly something you stick on your CV. But perhaps in a more subtle way, we are tempted to do what Simon did, uh, to look for the power behind the gospel message, to look for the benefits that it might bring us, and to forget about the giver of those benefits. It's tempting, isn't it, when we uh, come to church each Sunday, I'll come to our uh, small group or women's Bible study on a Friday, and to think, what can I get out of this? Where's the meaning? Where's the help? Where's the, the guidance? Where's the community that this could bring for me? And don't hear me wrong, all of those things are real, and all those things are things that we can search for and things that we can find at church and within the gospel message. But we must be careful that, like Simon, we don't go to those things and skip Jesus, skip coming towards him, uh, before him, and being honest that the first thing that we need help with is our sin. We must acknowledge our sin. We must acknowledge that on our own we're dead that we deserve God's judgment. And we must repent of it and trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross to forgive it. If we haven't done that, then no matter how religious we might look at on the outside, then we're not truly part of God's kingdom. That's why as we celebrate later on the Lord's Supper, when Jesus initiated that and told his disciples how to do it, he encouraged them to look inside themselves, to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, have we really truly trusted in Jesus? And are we continuing to trust in Jesus for our salvation? So that's the first thing that we see in this passage, the tragedy of Simon's inauthentic faith, which looked promising on the surface, but which ultimately didn't rest on Jesus, and where ultimately Simon's crooked heart hadn't been transformed. That's false, inauthentic faith then. What does true faith look like? Well, Simon isn't the only one to respond to uh, Philip's message and to the good news about Jesus uh, in this passage. Uh, Look with me again back up at verse 12. It says, but when they, uh, that's the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A number of Samaritans hear Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. That's a good sign. And they believe, and in obedience, they respond by getting baptized. Now, again, that looks pretty ordinary at first glance, doesn't it? Philip preaches the gospel. Some people hear it. They respond to it. They believe, and they're baptized. But remember, this is happening in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. Here are people considered by the Jews to be at best compromisers of and at worst traitors to the Jewish faith. But they're hearing the good news now about Jesus and they're responding to it in faith. So what are we to make of this? Can it be real? Is God really at work among the Samaritans? When the church back in Jerusalem hears that Samaritans are turning to Christ, that they believe that they're responding in obedience and faith, 
Uh, they send down Peter, the leader of the early church, uh, and John, an apostle, uh, one who uh, earlier in the Gospels were told once called down fire from heaven on the Samaritans and not giving them an easy ride. But when they come to Samaria, they have one clear purpose in mind. Look at verse 15. Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. One commentator calls uh, that verse, verse 16, the most remarkable in all the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, That's because there is something uh, unique and out of the ordinary happening here. Uh, The Samaritans, were told, have received the word of the Lord. They've heard the gospel. They've responded to it. They've trusted in Jesus' name, and they've been baptized. Great. But couldn't we say all the same things about Simon? Something hasn't happened yet, though. The Samaritans, were told, are yet to have received the Holy Spirit. He hasn't yet fallen on them. Now, lots of ink has been spilt on what is happening here, uh, and I'm not going to repeat it all now. You'll be happy to hear. The Samaritans appear to have genuinely believed the gospel, but now they have to wait to receive the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? Is this two-stage process normal? Is this something that we should expect as Christians now? To hear the gospel, to believe, but then to have to wait for the Holy Spirit? There's much that could be said about this, and we've got limited time, but it's worth looking at Acts as a whole and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Because there's already been an occasion back in Acts where Genuine believers have had to wait for the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be another one to come shortly in Acts 11. In Acts 1, Jesus tells the disciples uh, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, as we're seeing now. Uh, Second, now as the gospel reaches Samaria for the very first time, uh, as it breaks forth beyond the Jewish people, uh, there's a pause, and it's a check as if to say, Is this really what God is doing? Expanding the message of forgiveness and hope and salvation beyond his special chosen people to everyone, even the Samaritans. Yes, God is at work here. The gospel is for Jews and Samaritans and for Gentiles like us. And here is the active, visible work of the Holy Spirit as evidence. At 30, in a few chapters' time, in Acts chapter 11... Uh, we'll see Saul, who currently is ravaging the church and trying to destroy it, become Paul. And the gospel moves from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile. And the Holy Spirit falls on them, just as it did on the day of Pentecost. It seems as with each ripple of the gospel, with each advance of it into new territory, uh, there is the Holy Spirit in a very visible and unique way accompanying the gospel proclamation. However, when the Holy Spirit comes in terms of a timeline, in terms of chronology, is not, I think, the Apostle's key question, and not the key question that we should ask this morning. Because what really matters is if the Holy Spirit has come, if the Holy Spirit has been received. Because this is the key difference that enables uh, the true faith of the Samaritans to be true faith, and the lack of which means that Simon's heart is not truly transformed. We can't have real and true and active living faith without the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Tell the difference between true and false belief by looking for evidence 
of the Spirit's work. That's the telltale clue, as it were. That's how you can tell the real from the fake. That's the misaligned stitching. That's the recipe that's not quite right. We might have questions about when the Holy Spirit is received in Acts, but there's no doubt at all that he is at work. Sometimes that's in miraculous healing. Sometimes that's in gifts, like the gift of tongues or prophecy. In other instances, we see the Spirit at work in overflowing praise to God or in supernatural boldness to preach Christ in the face of serious and difficult opposition. Exactly what's happening here. So the question for us this morning to ask ourselves is, have we received the Holy Spirit? How can you tell? Well, the key question is, has your heart changed? Simon's heart hadn't changed. He said on the outside that he believed. He did the religious duties. He was baptized. But when Peter confronts him, he says, your heart is still crooked. It hasn't softened. It hasn't come before God and said, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I'm repentant. I know that I'm wrong and I need your grace and I need your mercy and I want to call you Lord and I want to follow you. Is that what your heart says? Because that in itself is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. We can't do that without God's Spirit at work within us. So does your heart wish to bow in obedience to Jesus and to move away from sin? I'm not saying you never sin or that you'll never mess up. But does your heart want to move away from it? Does your heart wish to praise and to worship God and to call him Lord? Are you willing to change the way that you live, to reprioritize your life around God's purposes and commands? If yes, then that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you. So praise God and ask him to go on filling you with his spirit. Confident of Jesus' promise to us that if Earthly fathers, though they are imperfect and evil, do not withhold what is good from their children. How much more will God give to his children, the Holy Spirit, when they ask him? If you can't say yes to that this morning, then I'd encourage you to talk to somebody. The warning for us here is not for us to be nervous or to be unsure, but is to be able to come to God and to receive his grace and his mercy, and to receive his Holy Spirit. Remember Peter's word uh, to Simon, uh, which even in rebuke is an invitation uh, to repent and to receive God's mercy. And those words echo uh, Peter's words uh, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which says this, uh, and with this we'll finish. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself.